If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 278 of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. Happy Saturday. Happy Saturday. Bonus episode for you. Um, today's episode is an interview that I did? You didn't, You weren't with me on I this one. I was unable to join you for this. That's right. Okay. So I interviewed Madeline Miller about her book, Circe, which is everywhere, was everywhere for like the past several months. Uh, she is super cool. The reason that we're doing this is because we have a program called Together We Read, which is very similar to our big library read program uh, where we create a big library. It is a global book club, but uh, Together We Read is more so in one section of the world. So for the most recent Together We Read that launches November 1st, we are doing a Circe for the United Kingdom. So all of our users and listeners who are in the United Kingdom who have a library card, go to your library's Overdrive website and you'll be able to borrow Circe by Madeline Miller for two weeks without any wait lists or holds. Um, it's a really cool program. And then you get to go to togetherweread.com and we have a discussion board and all sorts of really, really great stuff. So uh, I got a chance to interview Madeline all about where she came up with the idea for Circe. And if you're not familiar with mythology, uh, Circe is one of the kind of side characters in Homer's Odyssey. Um, but she's a very, very interesting one. And I don't want to really get into too much of it because we talk a lot about it in the interview. But um, she has done this before. She wrote Song of Achilles, which was a best-selling um, book as well. And so she has a background in mythology and um, it was really, really interesting. We nerded out a whole bunch about mythology. Um, and at the very, very end, uh, I came to discover that she's also a teacher of Shakespeare. So suffice to say, we then, after we stopped recording, geeked about theater for a long time. And she is going to come back at some point and talk to Jill and I about theater stuff. Cause yes. Fellow theater nerds. Um, so, yeah, that's Seriously by Madeline Miller. And, again, if you go to togetherweread.com, if you are in the U.K., Definitely go check that out. You can get the book without any waitlist or holds, and you can join our discussion board. If you're not in the UK, you can still enjoy this conversation, and you can still go borrow it because it's been out for a while, and thousands of libraries have lots of copies of both the ebook and the audiobook. So even if you aren't in the UK, this is a good episode to listen to. If people want to get a hold of us, how can they do that? They can find our website, um, professionalbooknerds.com. On there is our links to social. We are on Twitter and Instagram, at ProBookNerds. You can also get to our Viber community to come chat um, with us and others about books. And you can email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Yeah, and if you want to talk about seriously with us but you're not in the UK, just go to our Viber community. We'll talk about it. I'm a big mythology nerd. Um, anything else you think people should know about? I think that's everything. Okay. Well, happy weekend, like Jill said, and I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Madeline Miller on the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. (laughs) 
Hi everyone, it's Adam again, and today we are being joined by Madeline Miller, the international best-selling author of The Song of the of Achilles and Circe. Uh, her work has been translated in over 25 languages, and Circe was an instant number one New York Times bestseller. It was also selected by Overdrive users as the next Together We Read book club title for our UK readers. So first off, Madeline, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So would you mind kind of kicking us off by giving our listeners an introduction to Circe and what the book's all about? Sure. So um, Circe is, uh, in Greek mythology, she appears in Homer's Odyssey. She is a, a witch and a goddess, and she is famous for turning men into pigs. Um, and she turns Odysseus's men into pigs when he encounters her, and you know then he kind of talks her, talks her out of it, and she ends up turning them back and being very helpful to Odysseus. And so that was sort of the the germ of the story. Um, in that episode, Circe is just she's a very small part. She's really just a cameo in Odysseus's much longer story of trying to get home after the Trojan War. But I was really interested in sort of who is this woman? You know, how do you start turning men to pigs? How does one start doing that? Um, and so I wanted to kind of dig into her full history. And, and instead of having her be the cameo and, you know, this is Odysseus's story, I wanted to give her her own story and set her, set her at the center um, and let her narrate kind of her, her whole life. So... As I said, Homer was my jumping off point, um, but there are lots of other myths, actually, that she touches. She is the aunt of the Minotaur in mythology. She is cousin to the god Prometheus. She's the aunt of the other famous witch, Medea. So there were all these kind of resonances and exciting things to work with. Um, but it was really coming from the place of, you know, here's this character who hasn't been allowed to speak and whose story hasn't been told. You know, I want to tell it. I, I'm really glad you, you brought up the way that you did with uh, the Odyssey and Odysseus, because that you know, I much like everyone else in the book world, I at least took kind of cursory, you know, Greek and and Latin myth and Roman mythologies while I was in college, and so like that was the extent when I first saw that the title had come out a while back. I was like, I recognize that name. I think it's from Homer, and then I couldn't really, <laughs> you know, remember anything beyond that. So I'm really glad that you point out like this isn't you know the way that you wrote the story isn't just oh, I took that one moment in time from the Odyssey and kind of fleshed out a little bit. Like you said, you really are taking her entire story and, and giving her a voice for the first time. Yes, and she, um, you know, people, I think it's, there are a lot of characters in the Odyssey. Um, and actually, I think people oftentimes confuse Circe with the goddess Calypso. There are two nymphs in the Odyssey that Odysseus <laughs> you know, sleeps with and stays on their island mm -hmm. and the names both begin with C. And so <laughs> Calypso is the one who um, holds Odysseus captive for seven years. And then Circe is the one who turns his men to pigs. Um, <laughs> but actually, <laughs> despite the turning men to pigs thing, Circe is, is really incredibly helpful to him. And she gives him all this good advice about how to get past monsters. And she lets him stay on her island and heal um, as long as he wants. And so... Part of what I, I was also interested in doing is I think Cersei's got a really has gotten a really bad reputation mm -hmm. um, in sort of people's memories. I think people remember the pig thing that's very dramatic, <laughs> um, but they but they don't remember that she has this much fuller picture that she's you know terrifying but also benevolent. Um, you know she can be sort of a destroyer as well as a healer, and so I, I wanted to bring sort of that full psychology back as well. And it, it was a nice balance because there were four major kind of myths about her that I used um, 
And other than that, I was sort of left to kind of extrapolate, fill in the blanks. So there were many more, you know, blanks to fill in than there were, for example, when I was working with the character of Achilles, where there are so many myths mm-hmm. about him. Um, so it was fun. It was it was nice to get to do both, to get to invent as well as have these, you know, this really solid kind of four pillars of the novel. That's actually something I wanted to ask you to explore a little bit more in depth, because I think that's really fascinating, where it's almost like where when people write historical fiction and there are aspects they need to fill in, they need to decide, you know, what they want to put and, and what they don't. Um, we have a there's an author, Marie Benedict, who's been on a few times on our podcast. She does this with historical fiction. And when it comes to your stories, it's almost like historical mythology, <laughs> like where you're taking stories that exist, but they are that. They're stories with, you know, being mythology. But then you are picking and choosing which parts to to add that currently exist. So how do you decide, you know, where there are gaps, what to add, and, you know, which parts of the stories that are written down that you feel needed to go in there? Mm-hmm. That's a really, and it's, it, it is a very kind of interesting process. Um, and it is a little bit different when working with mythology than history. Uh, I would actually be very nervous about working with history myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, you know, these, these are real people. Um, but, you know, Circe hopefully is not going to rise up and, you know, or, or descendants of Circe are not going to be angry at, at the way I treated her. <laughs> um, but I think also mythology is different because mythology there is no you know definitive myth that already in the ancient world we have this this tradition of retelling you know we have homer is sort of the original circe but then she gets you know revisited in ovid and in virgil there were there's a lost satyr play about her i I believe or or she she's mentioned in that and you know we don't have that anymore um you know she and she's sort of revisited and revisited multiple times over the centuries and, and the millennia and so it kind of feels like you're working within that tradition so it doesn't it doesn't quite feel the same you know rejecting a source doesn't feel so um so frightening i think <laughs> or or you know as if you're as if you're violating something because that's just how myths are they're very elastic you know, Homer and all these myths started out as oral traditions, mm-hmm. and they were, you know, they were the type of things that grandparents told their grandchildren, and you know, they were passed down. So, so they have that elasticity built in. Um, that said, how I chose between them, um, you know, I think this is where. So, I'm, I'm a classicist by training, but this is where the novelist has to come in, and you know, I I have to write about the details that just really grab me and that I find really interesting and really gripping, and I have to kind of follow that passion um, and, and, you know, that heat within me in terms of my responding to the myth. Because if I'm not interested in the myth, there is no way I can make it interesting for my readers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, you know, for example, one of the myths that I didn't use is um, Ovid has a story about her, and this is elsewhere in mythology as well, about her turning this guy named Picus into a woodpecker. There was already a lot of transformation in the <laughs> yeah. novel. I didn't feel like I needed to do the woodpecker story. <laughs> so, you know, I I left that out. Um, and I felt no guilt about it. Because uh-huh. it just, you know, it didn't it didn't really fit with, with the vision of, of where I was going. Um, at the same time, you know, I was able to kind of draw out certain moments. So in this, there's a little bit of a spoiler, but... You know, mm-hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna tread carefully. Um, <laughs> she does have an encounter with the with the Minotaur at one point. Now mm-hmm. that part is not in 
you know, any mythology. Mm -hmm. However, her sister in the mythology is the mother of the Minotaur. So those types of connections, you know, where you can make that leap. Well, if my sister is the mother of the Minotaur, it makes sense that, you know, I might have some kind of, that Cersei might have some kind of interaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was it was sort of allowing myself to, to jump across those gaps uh, that was really a lot of fun, too, to kind of find out where the, you know, the myths came right up next to each other and to make the connection. I just to circle back on two things you said there. One, I'm just the idea of a nephew Minotaur is very funny to me. Um, <laughs> yes, well, and you know, can it, may I say that as a writer, also given the chance to write a Minotaur C-section scene, <laughs> you pretty much have to take that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so funny! And also, what is something you said away um, the beginning of that answer about how if um, her descendants, you're not worried about her def- her descendants coming after you. If that does happen, I think you have yourself an entirely new book to write because <laughs> <laughs> something exactly. phenomenal has happened. Um, I while writing this, it's clearly it's you know like you talked about having all of these all the knowledge of all these various myths and how they connect and all these things like as a writer you needed all that information but you wrote this in such a way i have to imagine you were aware of the fact that a lot of people might read this who might not be as aware of these myths as you know you or even someone who kind of casually enjoys myths so was that something that you were actively concerned with was like okay i need to tell this story in such a way that it makes sense and you know maybe there'll be some easter eggs here for for people who know the the stories but everyone can can enjoy it all the same yes absolutely that was one of the most important things about the way i wrote the novel um i'm a i'm a high school teacher um and one of the things that i love to do is bring you know bring people into the mist for the first time. And I never want anyone to feel shut out or like they have to do homework or, you know, like they can't get it. Um, I, I believe that these stories are for everyone. And in the ancient world, they were for everyone. I mentioned that they were oral tradition. You know, these were the stories that everyone, everyone told each other. Um, they didn't just belong to a particular group of people. And so when I write the novel, I really want to honor that. As you say, there are some Easter eggs if you do know the mythology, but you don't have to know the mythology at all. And in fact, I hope that the book could be a little bit of an introduction mm-hmm. to the mythology for people. So where did you get your interest in mythology? Like, Where did this all kind of start percolating in your brain? <laughs> um, so it actually goes back to, uh, to my mother, who was a librarian, and she loved books and loved to read. And so, of course, she read to me every night of my childhood. And starting when I was around five and six, she started to read me little bits of the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, which now she, you know, feels really inappropriate about. (laughs) She thinks that was not a good decision. But I'm very glad she did it because I loved these stories and I I just got drawn into them. And and they they were sort of electrifying to me. Um, I have a memory of her reading the, the first line of the Iliad, which is, you know, rage, sin goddess of the destructive rage of Achilles. And I just, you know, I was hooked. Um, and so I continued to kind of explore these myths. And I was very fortunate that I had a, I had a, um, a wonderful Latin teacher in high school who taught me ancient Greek as well. So I was able to start interacting with the stories in the original, which totally blew my mind. Um, and I just, you know, every step of the way, I would, I just kept loving them more and more. And so when I was choosing my university, I, you know, I picked a place that had a very strong classics department because I knew that I wanted to at least 
partially do that. Um, and I ended up doing it totally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I thought that I would do sort of psychology and classics, but classics just ate up everything because um, I, I couldn't stop taking classes in it. So it, it really sort of came out of this, this very early love, this encounter as a child. Did you just casually mention and then go right past the fact that you were learning ancient Greek? <laughs> I, okay, so That's are a you, very expensive. <laughs> I, I'm sorry that I was just like I wanted to make sure that I like I wanted to let you humble brag for a second there. That's incredible. <laughs> well, you know, I really I, I loved languages, and you know, it felt like such an exciting thing. It was like getting to pull the veil back and, mm -hmm. and getting the you know the secrets behind this thing that I loved. Um, and so, you know, when my teacher offered me the chance to study, I just, I said, yes, you know, sign me up. And it was, it was just incredibly exciting for me. You know, I've always loved language in general. And, and so studying Latin and Greek was exciting, not only for the poetry, but because of all the connections to English and, you know, the etymologies and all that stuff was just really exciting to me. So I imagine, you know, they always talk about with language, sorry, I can't get past this. If... All, you know, when people talk about learning a language, there's the whole like, well, if you're learning Spanish, the best way to do it is to like, go to Costa Rica or something somewhere where it's entirely Spanish, like to kind of immerse yourself. I can't imagine you can immerse yourself in speaking, you know, Greek, uh, ancient Greek languages. But are do you still like do the practice of reading ancient Greek texts? I do. I do. Um, when I, you know, as I was working on Circe, I, I reread the Odyssey in, in the original. And I also read translations because I'm always interested to see how other people approach various problems in the text. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when I'm, when I'm really looking at the text, I, I read it in the original. Um, I, I think that, you know, it's true exactly as you say, Latin and Greek are so-called dead languages, uh, and so, you know, we don't get to, there are a few programs that kind of teach you to speak Latin or, or you know, I haven't heard of any that teach you to speak ancient Greek. Um, mm -hmm. So mostly, it's, you know, it's about reading the literature, which was my favorite thing to do anyway. I mm -hmm. loved the poetry. I loved the ancient literature. Um, but I did go to Greece, and one of the interesting things about ancient Greek and modern Greek is that ancient Greek and modern Greek are actually closer than we are to Chaucer. So oh, wow. I could not, but the pronunciation has completely changed. Mm -hmm. So I could not understand a thing anybody said, <laughs> but I could, I could fake my way through a newspaper. Uh -huh. And so, so that was really exciting. Um, and going to Greece, even though, you know, it was not a language for language immersion, um, I went on an archaeological dig, was so important to this novel and to my first novel, Song of Achilles, because, you know, until I had sort of, been in olive groves and seen the sun on the water. It was all this very visceral stuff that I that I couldn't get, you know, from reading about it. I really needed to be there. So I I don't think either of these books could have been written without going to Greece. That's that is so interesting. And and the more I think about it, like it makes total sense because I do remember being in these classics classes and really struggling through translations of like like Gilgamesh or, you know, like yeah. these ancient stories because the context was really hard to understand. And then if you can't understand a lot of the context, you can't really understand where the story is. So yeah, I, you're, I guess that you're absolutely right. Like reading it in its original, you know, text that it came in and then being able to tie those things together. Yeah, I imagine that that really does make a huge difference when it comes to the reading. Yes, yes. 
Okay, I'm gonna go past this. I promise. I will stop harping on it. I just, <laughs> and that's so interesting to me. Um, speaking of like mythology as a whole, you know, these stories have been around for you know thousands of years. Why do you think that they remain so popular today? With like, with how fast things change and how many stories we have out in the world, these things are still really the basis of a lot of things we do today. So why do you think people still have an interest in them? Um. You know, the ancients had a saying that was nothing new under the sun, and I I think they were really onto something. Because even though these stories, you know, there are chariots, and there are gods, and there are monsters, and, you know, culture has changed, and there's that fantastical element, I think that the aspects of human nature that they address are still incredibly relevant and and are timeless. You know, we we still go to war. We still love and hope and grieve. Um, you know, we still bang our heads against the wall. We still make terrible mistakes and hurt those we love. All those things are, are aspects of, of the ancient myths, and they're absolutely, um, you know, still in our modern world. And so I think, I think the reason these stories have survived is because they just keep speaking to this timeless aspect of, you know, human faults, human virtues, human nature. One of the things that was really, you know, interesting for me is I started writing Circe in 2010. Um, and as I was going through the final round of edits, a lot of these news stories were breaking in the U.S. Um, about sort of powerful men who had been, you know, abusing women and silencing women and, you know, keeping them from the halls of power and retaliating against them if they, if they you know, refuse them and all this kind of stuff that, that was coming out. And I would be working on a scene, and then I would go check the news, and the headline would be, you know, literally what had happened, what what had happened in the scene I was working on, mm-hmm. and it was it was just, you know, I had always felt that these stories were really resonant, but seeing, you know, literally this is, you know, it's the same thing. Yeah, there were some got there were got the monsters in it, but otherwise, <laughs> you know, it, it was really the same. And and I think when you look at the Odyssey, you know, at its core. This is a story about an exhausted war veteran who is just trying to get home mm-hmm. and who, you know, can't get home and who suffers through, you know, terrible uh, horrors, misfortune, who sees brutality, who enacts brutality. And, and I, I think that, that that story of longing for home and that sort of exa- bone-deep exhaustion with the, with the horrors of the world is something that a lot of people um, can resonate with. And so... In writing Circe, I wanted there to be that very human element underpinning it, even though she is a goddess. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, you know, this story is a, is a coming-of-age story. It's about a, a young woman who was born into an absolutely horrendous family mm-hmm. um, who, you know, is trying to find her way out. And what's the cost of getting out? And, you know, can she carve a life for herself that's an independent life? Um, can she come into her own power? And I think that, too, is a is a timeless story. Okay, so I normally we ask people for, you know, book recommendations because we're a book podcast, but I want to do this a little bit differently with you because I this is for my own kind of inside mythology ner- <laughs> nerdiness. So obviously, you know, everyone knows, you know, th- there's the Iliad and the Odyssey, of course, and then, you know, there's things like everyone is obsessed with Hercules and then the, the Disney Hercules movie, which is wildly different, but there's, you know, there's Zeus and Hades. There's all these stories that people know so what are some of the, like, lesser-known stories or characters that you think, you know, obviously, other than Circe, which you have a whole book about, but, like, what are some of the other stories that you think people 
should it may, you know would really love if they were more prevalent like these other characters are mm. um i have always loved the character of hector um hector is the uh, oldest trojan prince in the trojan war mm-hmm. and he's sort of the 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 heir the great bulwark of troy he's the he's their best warrior and he sort of is the one who almost single-handedly is is fending off the greek assault and in the Iliad, Hector is really more of a hero than Achilles is, or pretty mm-hmm. much any other any other character. And so, and he has you know a beautiful scene in the Iliad with his wife and his little baby. And there's just you know he's an incredibly sympathetic character, even though you know theoretically the Trojans are the are the the enemy. Mm-hmm. And so I would love to see. I got to do a little little bit with Hector in both of these books, but I had to really restrain myself <laughs> <laughs> because he's not really that relevant. Um, but I, I would love to see to see more Hector and and more of his wife as well, Andromache, uh, and and more Trojans in general. Um, his sister Cassandra is also a fascinating figure. The woman who is you know cursed to always tell the truth and never be believed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of people feel like that in their lives, <laughs> speaking of, <laughs> of resonating. Um, and uh, let's see, who else? Um, I love Odysseus, Penelope's wife. I'm sorry, Penelope, Odysseus's wife. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, she has gotten more attention, I think, over, over the years. There's some wonderful poems about her by um, Louise Gluck and Carol Ann Duffy Dorothy Parker, Margaret Atwood wrote uh, a book called The Penelope Ad, mm-hmm. which sort of focused on her. But I, I don't think there can ever be too much Penelope. She is she's <laughs> such an interesting, you know, clever, brilliant, self-disciplined mm-hmm. woman. I, I I believe that Homer makes her uh, more brilliant even than her than her brilliant husband. So. Oh. Um, some more of her. Yeah, yeah, I could go on all day, but I'm going to stop there. <laughs> I was just going to say, I put you on the spot. I did not tell you I was going to do this ahead of time, and you knocked it out of the park. That was wonderful. Um, <laughs> I, I won't ask you to tell us if you are if if you are working on something, what it is, because I know you normally can't do that as an author, but are you planning on staying in the realm of mythology for the next book that you write? Um, I'm, I'm planning on staying, uh, in the ancient world, but not in, not in Homer's world. Although actually there, there's sort of two projects that are germinating right now, and I'm, I'm kind of working on both of them. And one is, is, uh, inspired by the Aeneid, which is the other mm-hmm. great ancient epic written in Latin, um, about the Trojan side, speaking of the Trojans. Yeah. Uh, although not, not Hector. And then, the um the other one the other thing i do is i'm a shakespeare director Mm -hmm. and so i love the tempest and i've been wanting to work with the tempest as a novel for a long time so we'll see i'm not sure which one is going to emerge first but i'm sort of noodling around with them both well listen i know that you're very short for time but i would love to bring you back at some point and have an entire theater conversation because my co-host and i are both giant theater nerds so that would be a lot of fun oh i would love that (laughs) i always love to talk theater and i and i don't get to do it very much so that would be fabulous okay well we we're we're gonna schedule that but i'll let you go with one more question and then i guess i know you're very busy but what do you hope all the readers from together we read and, and beyond take away from reading this book um, so I, I have two answers to that. And my first is that as a writer, once my book is out in the world, I think it belongs to readers as much as it does to me. So whatever people find in it, 
um, and whatever speaks to them, you know, I I honor that and I and I encourage that. I don't I don't want to you know give any answers and and I don't want to set out a program. You know, when I tell a story, I I'm not trying to kind of give a moral necessarily more than tell the story of one person's life and kind of raise the questions that surround that life. Um, all that said, I think that for me, the core of storytelling is empathy. And, you know, books allow us as writers to imagine ourselves into someone else's life and as readers to do the same thing. And I think that empathy is one of the highest and best human um, characteristics. And so I hope that, you know, that they can find something in Circe that resonates with them. Oh. That is fantastic. Madeline, I feel like I could talk about this stuff with you all day. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it is my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.